Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are now turning our attention to Canada, in particular, the Canadian housing market. This week, Moody's Investor Service downgraded Canada banks for the first time in more than four years. Why? Expanding levels of private sector debt could weaken asset quality in the future. That's according to David Beatty, Senior Vice President in the Financial Institutions Group at Moody's, and he is based in Toronto, uh, and he uh, comes to us now. David, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So I wanted just to start with how much the uh, troubles at alternative mortgage lender Home Capital Group weighed in uh, your decision to downgrade other Canadian banks. Uh, Not at all, Lisa. Um, We do not rate uh, Home Capital, as a matter of fact, so I can't comment on the details of their situation, but I I would uh, just note that at about $16 billion in mortgages, mortgage assets, they're uh, you know, a very small part of the $1.5 trillion Canadian mortgage market. Uh, the reasons for their current uh, troubles are very idiosyncratic, and they're not anything to do with the assets they have on their books. It's more confidence around funding. Um, so uh, we don't view it as a, uh, as a probable source of contagion for the rest of the banks, uh, and um, it didn't factor into our decision. Okay, so home capital might not be uh, the problem or even the catalyst. This isn't like the uh, asset-backed commercial paper market uh, circa 2007 in Canada collapsing and then uh, in, you know signaling impending doom for everybody else. But no. uh, it could potentially, uh, just on a broader level, the housing market in Canada, particularly in Toronto, has been under quite a bit of scrutiny for getting quite inflated. Um, and you think that this could be a potential concern for the banks in Canada? Well, yes, indeed, and that uh, you know, elevated housing prices, particularly in the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, and the Greater Vancouver Area, have uh, been on our radar for a number of years, and have figured uh, quite prominently in the uh, research that we've published over that time. Uh, but the first, uh, the first stage of uh, of our credit analysis for banks starts with what we call the macro profile, which is our assessment of the operating environment <clears throat> in which the banks operate, and uh, in our view. Um, the degree of leverage in the in the system overall has is at a very high level and continues to rise, and that gives us concern about the uh, future knock-on uh, negative effects on asset quality. Uh, when you say the amount of leverage in this system, are you talking about the uh, dwindling down payments that consumers are making on houses relative to the amount of debt that they're taking on? Are you talking about uh, hedge funds and other investors borrowing short term to lend long term? What exactly? Where are you seeing the biggest buildup of leverage? Well, uh, our, our primary metric when we look at this, and this is the metric we use globally for um, assessment of operating environments, is uh, private debt to GDP and the rate of growth of that metric. So we get our data from St- Statistics Canada, and we review that on a regular basis. Uh, that includes consumer debt, both mortgage and non-mortgage, as well as corporate and commercial debt. Um, the corporate component is largely not held on the bank's balance sheets. We have a robust debt capital markets here in Canada, and 
and uh, it's largely institutional investors that have the corporate book, but the um, consumer uh, mortgages and non-real uh, estate secured uh, lending is where we have been more focused, and not even really the mortgages. There are obviously concerns with the inflated housing prices um, and what that might do under stress, um, but there would still be significant collateral back in those mortgages. It's the credit cards and the indirect auto finance and those types of less well-secured exposures that would have, you know, loss given default uh, in the area of 100%, which would be probably the driver of larger losses. When was the last time that you saw the uh, levels of leverage uh, by the metric that you just laid out uh, that are as high as they are today? I don't believe they've ever been as high as they are today. And certainly the component of it, which relates to household debt, has never been as high. Which banks are most exposed? Um, There's uh, relative degrees, depending on how you cut the data of exposure to the Canadian consumer across the banking system. Um, uh, Suffice it to say that that we feel that our baseline credit assessments, which is sort of our starting point for rating the banks, uh, is the best, uh, you know, indicator of of relative exposure uh, in that case. Uh, TD would be the highest rated of the Canadian banks, and National Bank of Canada would be the lowest of those six. David Beatty, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is a really important topic, and we look forward to uh, hearing from you again. David Beatty is Senior Vice President in the Financial Institutions Group at Moody's Investors Service. Moody's uh, did downgrade uh, a number of Canadian banks for the first time in more than four years this week, uh, in part because of... uh, frankly, this incredible expansion of consumer debt relative to GDP that we have seen. And David just said that he has not seen a level that has been this high uh, in recent memory. Right now, I want to dig a little bit further into a political development that does not have to do with James Comey, the fired FBI uh, director that has gained so much attention uh, in Washington, D.C. But in fact, President Trump issued a commission, ordered a commission on fraudulent voting in elections, uh, which caught my attention because this could potentially rearrange the landscape for uh, how votes are broken up across the country and could potentially have longer term uh, effects to understand a little bit more about what the stakes are here, I want to bring in Ken Doyle, senior editor of Bloomberg BNA's Money and Politics Reporter com- Report, coming to us from Arlington, Virginia. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Can you, Thanks for having me. Can you first just give me a sense of what this commission on fraudulent voting in elections actually is? Well, it's it's not it's not clear exactly yet what it is. They haven't met. They haven't actually started up. It was announced in an executive order at the White House yesterday, exactly. It's supposed to be a 15-member commission. They only announced about five or six uh, members. It's headed by, uh, well, it's headed by Vice President Pence, but uh, the vice chairman is going to be Chris Kobach, who's the Secretary of State for Kansas, who's been a very outspoken uh, person on uh, immigration and voter fraud issues, somebody who has uh, really staked out a position on these issues. And uh, it seems like what they want to do with this is, um, uh, you know, emphasize uh, the claims that uh, that Trump and other President Trump and others have made about um, voter fraud being a um, a major problem. This, of course, is not a view that's shared by um, 
uh, everybody and, and, and many uh, Democrats view this as a basically a partisan effort to um, uh, to pass more voter ID uh, uh, legislation that would basically, you know, has the potential to suppress turnout, especially among minorities and, and people that might support Democrats. So it's a very controversial um uh, topic. It was something that was emphasized by Trump after the election, in which he lost the popular vote by about three million votes, and and um, it hasn't been talked about uh, for the last uh, really for a couple of months. Um, uh, but they decided to make this announcement yesterday, and I think the suspicion from Trump's critics. He said at the beginning that this is something other than the the Russia Comey issue, but the suspicion from Trump's critics is that. Um, they wanted to talk about something else, and that's why it was brought up this week. Well, okay, so let's put this into perspective. I mean, should we care about this, or is this window dressing from President Trump trying to appease his uh, his core supporters? I think that that's the question, is whether this would be a legitimate um, uh, investigation. There have been similar investigations in the past of problems with the voting system. They generally have been uh, more uh, sort of on a bipartisan basis where we look at all the issues. This is, you know, a, a commission that was announced to look at just one issue, the voter fraud issue that uh, Republicans have emphasized and that I say has been, you know, very controversial. Um, there were a couple of Democrats that were named yesterday um, uh, to who, who were um, going to participate in the commission. Uh, Bill Gardner, the Secretary of State of New Hampshire, and uh, I think it's Matt Dunlap, who's the Secretary of State of Maine. But both of those uh, people have actually, you know, pushed back against the Trump claims that there was widespread voter fraud. And uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to find uh, any Democrats and, and really many Republicans, you know, also feel that there was not, um, that this is just not a major issue. It's not an issue that affects um uh, election results in any kind of um, significant way. Well, let's let's zoom back a little bit and get a sense of how quickly uh, officials can move to change these standards by which people have to adhere in order to vote or potentially even rearrange districts. I mean, can people move quickly without, say, legislative action to rearrange uh, the, the the voting parameters? No, I mean that's the thing. It's the the laws on this are set. Uh, state by state, um, there there have been significant changes in the laws in some states. They they the, the states that have taken up this issue are generally those states that have uh, Republican majority legislatures and have have moved ahead on this. There have been some significant Supreme Court decisions that have allowed more of that activity, and some of the states have moved ahead. But this commission, the only thing that it's actually charged to do is to write a report to the president that says, you know, what what ought to be done. Uh, uh, presumably uh, about this. Uh, they say that the, the report won't come out until sometime next year. Um, and then at that point, presumably, they might pass along recommendations either to the states or possibly to Congress. I mean, there's some suspicion that um, the the Republicans might try to use this to roll back what's called the, the Motor Voter uh, Act, the National Voter Registration Act, which was the a national law that was put in place to ease uh, voter registration requirements that there would be, you know, basically a, you could fill out a postcard and send it in to state officials to to register more easily and also requiring states to uh, allow registration through, you know, um, 
driver license and other um, other state facilities. Um, so the Republicans might try to use it for something like that, but not not immediately. You know, Ken, I have to wonder if this is window dressing or if this is basically a plea or diversion uh, to uh, give uh, core supporters of President Trump something to think about other than the uh, hurrah around uh, James Comey and his uh, and his, his getting fired. Is it is this emblematic of Washington spinning its wheels and getting mired in stuff that is uh, is not going to go anywhere and is a waste of time? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of interest in sort of controlling the the narrative, right? I mean, whether and, and especially at the White House, that they may feel like they've lost some control of what's going on and they're trying to to get it back and have Trump be more, you know, uh, on the offense rather than the defense. This was something that he was pushing. He was talking about a lot earlier uh, in the year. And actually, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people said, you know, that he shouldn't be talking about this because there, was, there wasn't a lot of evidence to back it up and it was uh, kind of problematic. But it, it does, I think it does show the point that we're at, that they've brought this up as, uh, as you know, uh, an alternative, um, you know, thing to talk about as opposed to the, the Russia Comey thing. And clearly they're they're very... Uh, the people in the White House are very preoccupied by this at this point. This is such a huge story this week that, um, you know, that it's hard for them to, to, uh, to talk about something else, but they would like to, obviously. Is there anything else that we can expect them to uh, try to divert the attention to? I mean, something even mm-hmm. worthwhile, like that, perhaps health care taxes? Well, I think that that's what they would like. Certainly, that's what the Republicans on the Hill would like to talk about. They'd like to be able to get back to that. I think that that's certainly what... Um, you know, what the White House would like to, they, they, they want to find a way back to talking about other things, including those issues. But that's going to be hard uh, for everybody. It's going to be hard for people in Congress, I think, to to talk about those issues as well when they're going to be asked questions about, um, you know, this latest controversy. Yeah. Well, the other is, I guess, raw meat. It's probably easier for people to care about and get excited about rather than uh, very tricky things with lots of sides like health care and taxes. Ken Doyle, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Ken Doyle is senior editor for Bloomberg BNA's Money and Politics Report coming to uh, us from Arlington, Virginia, talking about uh, the latest uh, President Trump executive order ordering a commission on fraudulent voting in elections. Is it just a diversion tactic to uh, move some eyeballs away from the James Comey drama? Perhaps. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. We got some retail sales numbers uh, today, and we've got a whole host of results from department stores over the past 24 hours. And they kind of paint a conflicting picture to get a better sense of what it all means. I want to bring in Seema Shah, consumer discretionary analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Bert Flickinger, managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Uh, And Seema, I want to start with you uh, to set the stage with respect to these U.S. retail sales numbers that we got for April that seem to be okay. They weren't terrible. Thank you, Lisa. They were okay compared to last month, but they still missed expectations. And I think part of the 
benefit was from the Easter shift from March to April. Um, but I think if you step back and you think about, and also you look at what the components were of retail sales, the a lot of the growth was coming from categories where we've seen growth before, building materials, non-store retail, so basically online. Um, so, and you saw positive sales from autos, though they've declined since last year. So I think going forward, that's going to be a risk for retail sales. And Bert, certainly we saw um, nothing rosy about the numbers out of most of the department stores, Kohl's, uh, Nordstrom's, Macy's, uh, really some devastatingly disappointing numbers. What do you make of all this? It's uh, it's part of the denouement of many going down. So uh, you see Bonton in, in, a t- in a ton of trouble. Sears Holdings, which still sells a lot of apparel and accessories, in trouble. Uh, J. J. Crew in trouble. Barney's in trouble. Even uh, as uh, you're the worldwide star of bonds and fixed income, Lisa uh, Neiman Marcus <laughs> you're Bergdorf, my personal, uh, uh, by, marketer. By, by bonds are are, tr- are trading way down. And there's some silver lining in in Penny. Penny's gross margins, if you stack over a three-year period are up about a thousand percent gross margins are still trading up s p just upgraded the bonds to b plus while nordstrom and and the others are triple c and uh, with penny you've got more margin expansion uh, uh solid or flat uh, same store sales projected for the rest of the year but the four cornerstones are really doing well sephora uh, fine jewelry uh, doing well, uh, boys and girls uh, fa- uh, fashion doing well, and home doing well. So uh, Penny shifting a lot of sales from Sears, uh, which as you and uh, Seema said, reporting next week, ton of trouble, uh, and shifting sales from just about everybody else in the sector too. Well, uh, Seema, I want to get to back to what we, one thing that you were saying before we drill into the uh, likely success or failure of some mm-hmm. of these companies. Mm-hmm. I want to dig into something that you were talking about with respect to the drivers of some of the gain in retail. Sales. You talked about autos, for example, where we have seen the sales slowing. We've seen building materials. I mean, do these numbers suggest to you that there is kind of more weakness that was going to play out in retail sales that could sort of speak to something broader? Yeah. So I think I, I've probably been a little bit more on the, on the bearish side uh, versus some of my colleagues because I'm concerned about how strong autos were last year. And if you step back, you know, tweeted this with each other. I'm very concerned about the rising (laughs) auto loans, the delinquencies. I'm very concerned about the synchronies and the Alliance data systems of the world raising their charge off rates, which is, by the way, credit income is a huge component of many department stores and other retailers operating income. And it's a huge driver of sales. So if credit, if people are using credit to buy and then they're not paying it back, I think that it paints a more negative picture of the consumer. If you step back and you think about the macro indicators the economists talk about, a lot of that wage increase and it's on the low end. And it might be that those people are shifting the money either to their homes or just to basic necessities like healthcare, which could go up if we have the American Healthcare Act pass, or just housing costs. You know. So I'm more concerned about the actual state and health of the consumer and then what it means for the retailers who are facing this potentially weaker consumer, and then the secular pressure of the Amazons and rising competition in their space. Right. And Bert, just to sort of what you were talking about with the winners and the losers, I mean, you talked to Sephora, this has been a longstanding mm-hmm. trend that people spend more on makeup because, mm-hmm. you know, because of possibly Instagram, because people want to look good in their selfies, <laughs> right? They're getting more manicures. Exactly. Uh, but Bert, I mean, like, project out over the next two years, I mean, you said the denouement, are we going to actually see some of these companies, these department stores, really, truly 
close. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, Lisa, as, as you referenced uh, so presently in some of our earlier broadcasts, when the retail bonds uh, go to triple C minus and trade 65 or below, uh, they're, really, they're really in trouble. And that's also often a leading bankruptcy indicator. So are there ones that are Yeah, so, so uh, uh, Sears Holdings, uh, Kmart's there. Uh, J. Crew hasn't gotten there, uh, but uh, easily easily could. The Barney's, uh, that's in a tr- ton of trouble. NMG, Neiman Marcus Group Dash, uh, Bergdorf's is there, and then a lot of the teen retailers that have already gone over Niagara Falls in a barrel uh, with <laughs> without any padding. So uh, Route 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 Twenty One with BB, a very fashionable that, dress on, though. It's, <laughs> Not that fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some bright bright blue skies ahead. We've got uh, Memorial Day coming up. The last quarter reported was some of the worst uh, weather between cold rain, uh, floods, etc. Uh, now there's some uh, lighthouse, lighthouses in terms of economic activity between energy, all levels uh, from uh, renew, renewable to carbons. Uh, agriculture's uh, back on its feet. Manufacturing's back on its feet. There'll be some more uh, spending. And with the tax refunds because of the problems in Washington coming out late, uh, second quarter should be good. And as, as uh, UNC Sema presently pointed out, uh, auto sales of um, I uh, hit the hit the uh, wall at Darlington and uh, bouncing off and limping to the finish line. What that usually means, and with Apple in between product cycles, is people will go out to department stores, spend more. Disney, the other theaters have a strong studio release schedule, so uh, there are. Uh, potentially more people going to the malls this summer. And when I talk to surviving retailers, they're seeing a lot of sh- shoppers shift over in the same malls from the declining retailers are going going down swinging, uh, trying to liquidate their inventory for their vendors and unsecured creditors. You know, I, as you talk, I mean, when you talk about some of the bonds that are trading down and sort of uh, indicating that there could be an imminent bankruptcy of companies like Sears and Kmart and potentially J. Crew uh, in a little bit, uh, I have to wonder, I mean, they've been signaling this for a long time and you know eddie lampert for example with sears has really kept that company afloat but yeah i was just go ahead go yeah no please go but i was just gonna say that retail tends to die a slow death you can look at radio shack right because a lot of the individual stores are profitable so they just basically milk them for cash and like he's that's basically what he's done right he's not spending any money in this so yeah sears should have died 10 years ago but he's able to keep it alive. And you see that with many of the retailers. It's only that just kind of limp along and then... But is this part of the problem, right? Is this part of the reason why the retail sector has been unable to sort of revive itself apart from Amazon coming in and just completely changing the landscape? Is it partly that, you know, they won't let a bad thing die? There's there's an insidious unreported story, too, is that the uh, greedy bankruptcy uh, firms are gouging these poor retailers, Uh, whether it's FTC M&A, in the case of a few firms or some of the notable bankruptcy firms, gouging these poor firms and the secureds and the undersecureds uh, for over $100 million in professional fees. They don't know what the devil they're doing. They haven't done any work in retail. They bring in financial advisors. Don't know what the devil they're doing. And it almost seems that their goal is boomerang bankruptcies to do a Chapter 11 bankruptcy followed by a Chapter 7 so they could do $100 million in professional fees <laughs> twice while impairing the company. And that's the scandal that the bondholders and the secured creditors, the unsecureds, largely the vendors and the landlords really have to get 
get after these uh, bankruptcy firms that really have low to no retail uh, experience in the space and have often failed in, in, in prior ones, as you and Seema are, are so describing so well, having these companies link uh, limp along. And the only ones who are getting rich are the bankruptcy lawyers, their firms, and the professionals they bring in. Again, with with uh, close close to no relevant retail experience. I mean, then I guess this makes sense, right? Then you still have these people selling things that cheaper prices, and it hurts the whole industry. You're not getting that shakeout that you need. So, see what happens to, in my perspective: legacy retailers all need to rethink the whole competitive landscape and how big they are. They grew all too much and too fast in the 2000s, and the ones that exist probably have to be significantly smaller to be profitable and to have upside, right? Because online now is a growing part of their business. So I think they're just, it's its a huge cut. They have to really step back and say, what kind of business should I be now? It's right. not the business well, it used to be. And underpinning that question goes to something that you were saying before, Seema, which is the idea that healthcare is getting more expensive mm-hmm. and housing costs are getting more expensive and a greater proportion of people's income is going to those expenses. Mm-hmm. In other words, the amount that could potentially go to discretionary mm-hmm. spending to these retailers uh, is going down. I mean, aside from the Amazon albatross, mm-hmm. you know, are we seeing some kind of uh, reduction in spending that we can even see in the U.S. Uh, retail sales uh, numbers that came I think out that you are. Some of it is probably due to sh- spending shifting to other areas, necessities, but it's also, I think people have to step back and think about human behavior. Since 08, everybody has been used to deals. I don't care how much money you are, or how wealthy. If you do not have a de- sale, you're not going to buy it. It's so true. I used yeah. to come home. Doesn't from, matter. I used to come home from the store, and I would say to my husband, I'd be like, I got this on sale, and he's like, How? Yeah, I was like, fifty percent off. He said, How much did you spend? I said, one hundred and fifty dollars. And he would roll his eyes. Less the go absolute on. amount. So I think that that mindset is killing retail across the board because. People want a deal. How can you pull back from promotions to boost your gross margin where you're going to kill your sales? So on top of all of this, it's really so the fact that these retailers limp along, that just sort of exacerbates, I think, the problem that, hey, you know, I'm not going to buy that black shirt because I'm going to get it next week from Macy's with the 12 coupons they send me every day in the mail. And and the fashion vendors are are, uh, causing some of the problem, too, unwittingly. So in our field work, we're seeing them under-resourcing. Uh, prestige and luxury fashion shoes mm-hmm. uh, to retailers like Nordstrom because they think they can sell full price through their own stores, whether it's Gucci or or, or others. And then what they ultimately do is they don't they don't give enough luxury goods to the leading department stores who made them, and then then they wind up closing off on the internet or give it to Carol Meyerowitz and Ernie Herman to close out at, at TJX and the rest of the off price places across America and worldwide. So, uh, vendor community uh, share, shares in the blame and, and pain, uh, but the, uh, there's going to be a retail right. renaissance coming after this retail ice age, but it's going to take about a thousand <laughs> days for us to go through the deep freeze and bounce back. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Really a fascinating conversation. I am sure it will be ongoing. Seema Shah is Consumer Discretionary Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource uh, Group. Uh, 
Uh, right now, I want to look into a new type of lending. Well, it's not that new. I guess this business is uh, more than a decade old, but it's certainly been ramping up. Jim Richitelli is co-chief executive officer of Unison Home Ownership Investors, which is based in San Francisco. And Jim, we were just talking a little bit offline about sort of the objective of getting money to consumers who want to buy houses uh, to help pay for their down payments. Can you explain a little bit about what this is? Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Unison has introduced a new financial product category to the world. We call it home ownership investment. It's long-term funding. Uh, it's not a loan. Uh, Unison invests in the home alongside you. Uh, there are no interest payments, no interest charges. Uh, when you sell the home as partners, we share the outcome. Uh, we share the change in value of the home. Uh, so if the home value rises, we will share the appreciation. If the home value falls, we'll also share in the loss. One of the purposes of the funding that we provide is to use it as part of the down payment on a home purchase. So uh, this this seems like it has somewhat of a pretty big risk attached to it, just because you don't get paid out until you know thirty years down the line when somebody sells the house, or unless it gets prepaid uh, earlier. And you know who's investing, and uh, what's what's the value proposition for them? So we raise money from institutional investors like pension funds and endowments. Residential real estate is a very attractive asset class for these investors because it closely tracks inflation, and it's a very large component of the economy. They've never had any way to get exposure to it until now. And one of the things that's very extraordinary about what we do is that for the first time ever, Unison is making residential real estate, which is the world's largest asset class, an investable asset class for institutional investors. So uh, you opened the business in 2005. Um, what has the what have the returns been like? Uh, they've actually been very good. We have some of the investors that invested with us way back uh, have invested again. We've managed a, a pool of these assets that were generated before the crisis, through the crisis. They perform well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a good program. It's a it's a it's a good deal we strike between the investor and the consumer. The consumer gets the benefit of long term finance, without payments, and the investor gets the benefit of the new asset class. These investors don't need payments. They're long term investors. Right. They need exposure to the asset class, and the consumer likes the idea of not having to make payments on long term finance. So it's a there's a natural alignment between the two. And that's the genesis for the business. Uh, how, how, what's sort of the total volume of loans that have been originated like this? Or not uh, loans. They're not loans. They're not I loans. I should take that back. They're of financing. Loans. Excuse me. Financing. Uh, we, we are growing very, very quickly right now. We started the business, uh, as you mentioned, uh, back before the crisis. We had about 14,000 consumers in our pipeline when we were forced to basically, you know, hunker down for the crisis for a while. So we had done, uh, you know, our first several hundred transactions at that point. After the crisis, we relaunched our original program, the home buyer, uh, I'm sorry, the homeowner program, and added the home buyer program. And now that program is ramping up very, very quickly. We've got uh, very large amounts of, of capital committed. And, and as I said, we're growing like 100% month over month in terms of our, our origination pipeline. Do you have certain parameters as far as how much money the uh, homeowners have to put down uh, or sort of any of the, the, the loan to, to value ratio or anything like that? In most cases, the homeowner puts down half of the down payment and we put down half. Uh, that, you know, by, in most cases, they're getting an 80% loan on the property. So we share the down payment 50-50. 
Right, but but as far as the parameters for the consumer and what you know kinds of leverage are, are you know just to make sure that people aren't being irresponsible or, or unable to pay back their loan or you know you because know, possibly they're going to have to get a mortgage in addition to the down payment so to make sure that it's not going to be uh, something that's going to end up in foreclosure which could potentially become a problem right sure in general uh, the LTV on the property is eighty percent or less. Remember, this is a way for you to get to 80 LTV because you can buy a home with 10% down in the with an agency loan. You can do that today, but you're going to wind up borrowing 90% and paying mortgage insurance. So you have that high leverage. The monthly payment on that 90% loan with mortgage insurance is going to be about 15 to 20% higher than the monthly payment would be if you got an 80% loan and didn't pay mortgage insurance. So what we do is we enable the consumer to get the benefit of making a full 20% down payment with only putting 10% of their cash in. And that benefit is huge. It's additional purchasing power. It's a lower monthly payment things like that. What regions of the country are you targeting? We're currently in 13 states, uh, the entire West Coast and the Northeast corridor from uh, Virginia up through Massachusetts. We're also in Illinois and Arizona. The states that we're in, as you, I'm sure you'll recognize, uh, comprise a lot of the largest metro areas in the country. So we're already in uh, areas that, that account for 54% of the U.S. real estate. Do you think that the target demographic is really the millennial? <clears throat> That's certainly one of the people that we help, but our programs actually help people across the entire their entire life as a homeowner. We can help you buy your first home, and that definitely helps a millennial, uh, but we can help you with your last home, and we can help you finance your life needs in between with our homeowner program that allows you to, to tap into your existing home equity without borrowing. Jim Richitelli, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really uh, an interesting uh, new type of financing. Jim Richitelli is co-chief executive officer of Unison Home Ownership Investors, which is based in San Francisco, and he joins us here in a Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.